1,688. The number of polling locations closed since 2013 in states previously covered by Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. 74%. That's how much more likely it is that you will have to wait more than 30 minutes to vote in a black neighborhood compared to a white neighborhood. 5.2 million. The number of Americans denied the right to vote by state felony disenfranchisement laws. 16 million, the number of Americans purged from voting rolls in just two years between 2016 and 2018. By the sound of it, this system is failing. Melissa, it's time for a system check of voting. I'm Dorian Warren. And I'm Melissa Harris-Perry. And this is System Check. Where we talk to the experts to help fix your systemic problems. All right, Dorian, I have a little quiz for you. Okay, shoot, go for it. All right, question one. A U.S. senator is elected for a term of blank years. That's easy. Senator serves six-year terms. Ah, you got it. All right, true or false. By majority vote of the members of Congress, the Congress can change provisions of the U.S. Constitution. No, 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 that's false. Changing the Constitution is much more complicated than just a majority vote in the House. Listen, that Ivy League PhD is really paying off. (laughs) So I'm sure you'll have no problem with these. Okay, Mm -hmm. appropriation of money for the armed services can be only for a period limited to blank years. Or maybe what words are required by law to be on all coins and paper currency of the U.S.? I'm sorry, what? Or if the two houses of Congress cannot agree on adjournment, who sets the time? The what? Or of the original 13 states, the one with the largest representation in the first Congress was? Okay, but Melissa, uh, (laughs) slow down for a second. Where the hell are you getting these questions? (laughs) You're going to love this or hate it. Uh, All of these questions are part of the 1965 literacy test of the state of Alabama, Hmm. a test that had 68 complex, obscure procedural questions, and the Alabama registrar could require any black person to respond to all of these questions and to give answers, quote, to the registrar's satisfaction just to be able to register. Oh, yes. Now, these were the kind of unfair and unjust barriers that kept black folks from being able to be full citizens a hundred years after the end of slavery. And even more disturbing, unfair barriers to voting aren't just part of our history. They are very much part of the reality of voting in America today. It has been an incredibly alarming turn of events to see the way in which you know, absentee voting has been attacked, particularly by the president, to see the president of the United States attempting to delegitimize a legal and legitimate form of voting. Even more alarming than that, to see the attorney general of the United States join in and himself perpetuate wild conspiracy theories about absentee voting, to see states fight against efforts during this pandemic to make it difficult for people to absentee vote, to see a political party challenged the use of drop boxes for absentee votes, to see political operatives talk about 
you know, what they plan to do to try to interfere with the counting of absentee votes. I mean, it has been really awful to just see how debased our system has become. That is Sherilyn Eiffel. She's the president and director counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. In this role, she leads a team of civil rights lawyers and scholars who are working to advance racial justice and protect voting rights. She joined System Check to help us diagnose the current state of our voting system. Yes, there is a system of voting that is wrong in this country. We should, you know, there should be a unified system. We have 50 states, we have all these different county boards. We are facing not just one, but 50 separate and unequal voting systems. So how do we get here? Well, Article 1 of the U.S. Constitution gives states the power to set, quote, the times, places, and manner of congressional elections. The states then delegate to county and local officials many of the decisions about where, when, and how residents can cast their ballots. So really, it's more like 10,000 confusing and conflicting voting systems. It can be even hard to know who's actually in charge. Now, 24 states give election power to an elected secretary of state, while nine states have a board or commission that oversees elections. The governor appoints the chief election official in five states, while the state legislature makes that appointment in three states. You still with me, Melissa? Barely. (laughs) Okay, stay tuned. In California, you can vote for a full 29 days before the election. But in Louisiana, you can vote early 14 days before the election, but not for the seven days immediately before the election. In Georgia, Mississippi, and Tennessee, you will not be allowed to vote unless you have a state-issued ID. But in New Mexico, no documentation is requested to vote. In Colorado, citizens have their voting rights restored automatically after a felony sentence is complete. But in Virginia, there is a long wait period required to vote even after parole or probation. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, in Maine, citizens can vote even while they are incarcerated. Oh, big up on the progressive Maine. Hey, and you know, did you know we also have some astronauts who are casting their absentee ballot from space this year, Melissa? Okay, Dorian, stop it. I mean, listen, (laughs) once we are intergalactic in our voting (laughs) rules, we have definitely moved into a system I can barely even follow anymore. Exactly. And this confusion you are feeling that I am feeling is not accidental. It is by design. Because differences in voting rules are not just benign affairs or accidents. In every single state, there is a story a history, in fact, of how and why the system looks the way it does. Now, voting systems are always intentional. Let's be very clear about this. In every case, there are stories of movements, of leaders, of special interests, and of elected leaders determined to open up or close off access to democracy. But we also have white supremacy. And when I say we have white supremacy, I say it intentionally because I think we have failed to recognize the role of white supremacy in the voting context. Well, Sherilyn Eiffel, of course, is right. I mean, there is no way to understand the system of American voting without accounting for the ways that this system is infected by white supremacy. I mean, let's just start at the beginning. In 1776, these young revolutionaries who were declaring themselves independent of a corrupt British government because the king imposed taxation without representation. But even as they established this new nation, they also jealously guarded freedom and the franchise for themselves. 
and it takes nearly a hundred years, a bloody civil war, an assassinated president, and a brutal political fight in Congress to finally extend the franchise to black men through the adoption of the 15th Amendment in 1870, but we sisters were still waiting. Mm Because even though the 19th Amendment was ratified 100 years ago in 1920, the vast majority of black men and women were either barred or banned from registering and voting. He had tools like the poll tax and that so-called literacy test that we talked about earlier that were used to keep black folks from being full citizens. And it it wasn't just rules and procedures that kept black people from voting. White supremacists did not hesitate to enforce these unfair systems with intimidation, with violence, with targeting, particularly of black activists and organizers. Right. So, I mean, when we hear people say that folks gave their lives, it's right there. They, in fact, did. And yet they gave them. Our folks for decades, strategizing and sacrificing, resisting, losing, regrouping, fighting again. And then finally, that incredible, critical victory in 1965, the Voting Rights Act. Melissa, the Voting Rights Act, it's often understated how important it is because I think some political scientists would, would argue that The Voting Rights Act of 1965 is the first time the United States became a true democracy. Mm -hmm. We were an authoritarian country before then, and particularly in the Jim Crow South, by excluding folks. And so the Voting Rights Act that finally cleared the way for black folk to exercise the right to vote, to be citizens fully, it removed many of the barriers that state officials had erected. And part of the reason the VRA, as we call it, was so effective is because it did more than just outlaw the existing practices of Jim Crow elections. It also anticipated that states would continue to try to use their power to prevent Black Americans from having a voice. You know, I think sometimes about the passage of the Voting Rights Act in 1965, and particularly the provision of the Voting Rights Act that gave us preclearance, which was Section 5. And if you're a voting rights litigator, when I joined LDF in 1988, that's what I was doing. And one of the first things you did was you read the Senate report that accompanied the Voting Rights Act, right? And so you're reading kind of the, and it's it's regarded as the authoritative kind of legislative, you know, analysis that describes kind of what they were trying to accomplish in passing the Voting Rights Act. And in the Senate report, the Senate says that Section 5, the preclearance requirement, which required these jurisdictions to get federal permission to make voting changes, what the Senate report said was that it was designed to address not only existing voting discrimination, but any other, and I'm quoting now, ingenious methods that might be adopted in the future. And so the reason I love it is because they knew their people. I mean, they they knew that we don't, we can't just create a law that just deals with the stuff we see and know now. But, you know, just if, if I had to guess, they're probably gonna come up with some new ingenious methods, right? And so they were very clear that that was their projection. I love this insight. This was one of my favorite moments when we were talking to Sherilyn Eiffel, because we do have to remember how absolutely wickedly ingenious the methods have been that have been used to suppress voting. So Dorian, let's go back for a second. Remember all those questions that I asked you? I, how could I forget? I'm just trying to get the answers. (laughs) All right, so given how educated you are, 
If I am the Alabama or the Georgia or the Mississippi registrar, I do have to have one more ingenious test up my sleeve. Now, Mm -hmm. I know our listeners won't be able to see this, but I'm going to hold this up to the Zoom camera. Can you see what I'm holding there? Is that a jar of candy? (laughs) Specific candy. A jar of jelly beans. And yep. Wow. If in 1964 you had rolled up into my voting place, all educated and maybe took some time over the Highlander school or that sort of thing, and you knew all the answers to all those obscure questions, I could still pull out my jelly bean jar and say, just how many jelly beans are in this jar? And if you can't guess the Mm. right number, then you can't vote. And I think that's in part what's so brilliant about the Voting Rights Act is that it recognized this insidious and ingenious system of disenfranchisement and it responded by creating its own system, a system of preclearance. And the preclearance system required that states with a history of behaving in the ways that we've talked about had to ask permission of the Department of Justice before they could make any new changes to their voting rules. Hmm. And Melissa, it worked because what we do know about systems is they can be designed to be unjust, but they can also be designed to be equitable and offer and enable freedom. And so for nearly 50 years from 1965 until 2013, the Voting Rights Act lowered barriers, increased participation, increased the level of resources from the federal government to those Southern states in particular, and resulted in the election of African-Americans at all levels of government, including. I will never forget who this victory truly belongs to. It belongs to you. It belongs to you. And from the millions of Americans who volunteered and organized and proved that more than two centuries later, a government of the people, by the people, and for the people has not perished from the earth. This is your victory. Oh, it was quite a night. And the new president-elect Obama may have been very grateful. But let me tell you something. The state of Alabama was like, oh, hell no. So not long after President Obama's victory, Shelby County, Alabama, sought to invalidate the Voting Rights Act by claiming that the system of preclearance was unfair. And in June 2013, a conservative Supreme Court agreed, issuing a 5-4 ruling that effectively invalidated the federal government system for holding the disenfranchising practices of state governments in check. And the walls came tumbling down. Since the Supreme Court decided Shelby v. Holder, Cheryl and Eiffel and the NAACP Legal Defense Fund have joined forces with dozens of local and national civil rights organizations trying to form a levy against the flood of suppression tactics that immediately overwhelmed the system. Purges, voter ID laws, restrictions on early voting, closing polling places, and a constant false argument that these laws were somehow necessary to protect the so-called integrity of the electoral process. In short, after Shelby, states tried to make the system of voting great again. We only started talking about white supremacy again after Charlottesville. After Charlottesville, when people said they, you know, people would had Nazi slogans, they were carrying flags with swastikas, and people now got, this is white supremacy. And my point is, that is white supremacy. It's terrible, it's dangerous, it's odious, 
But isn't it equally dangerous that whole legislatures are meeting and passing laws for the purpose of keeping black and brown people from voting? I'm not saying that. I'm telling you what federal court said. What federal court said. In North Carolina, the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals said that North Carolina chose the forms of voting associated with its voter ID law with surgical precision to target the black community. And these issues are so deeply embedded that one of the systemic remedies that Dorian, I know you and I have even talked about Mm -hmm. is like, maybe what we need to do is in fact, amend the constitution. Maybe we need an affirmative right to vote for all adults, that maybe that could make it so much harder for states and localities to chip away at the vote. So we asked Sherilyn Eiffel about this idea of a constitutional amendment and well, she got me all the way together on that. I know about, you know, the movement to to pass a constitutional amendment to provide an affirmative right to vote. I've not been a huge supporter, not because I wouldn't love for there to be an affirmative right to vote in the Constitution, but because, you know, I'm a civil rights lawyer. You start opening up the Constitution, I don't know what you're going to do. And I'm not sure I'm going to be the one in control of what you're going to do once you have, you know, because you have to go through this process of all the various state assemblies and so forth. First of all, it's a very elaborate long term. So you're talking about something very long term. But secondly, you're talking about opening the Constitution, frankly, at this moment in the country in which 40 percent of the people at least are okay with somebody who is explicitly racist, who has demonstrated, you know, his unfitness and so forth. I don't feel particularly comfortable with that. What I do think is that We need a legislative fix that is more comprehensive, more ambitious, and more airtight, right, in terms of, you know, you know it's going to be challenged, and really working through and creating a record that supports a strong affirmative bill. And a strong legislative fix will have to account for new forms of suppression now that voter suppression has gone digital, as coordinated campaigns of misinformation and disinformation use platforms like Facebook to spread divisive and false information. Now, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund has partnered with organizations like Color of Change and the Leadership Conference to ensure that Facebook prevents attempts at voter suppression. So now we've all been involved in this. We're litigating. We're doing this incredible work. And now we have this major platform that, you know, basically is the most powerful communication platform in the world that Black people disproportionately use, by the way, Facebook. And... And now we have, you're going to create a policy against voter suppression. And the question has constantly been, so what is the internal infrastructure you have in Facebook that would allow you to evaluate what constitutes voter suppression? What's the algorithm that helps you understand what that is? And if you have human content reviewers, who are they? Do they know what that means? Do they know anything about the history of voter intimidation? Do they know what it even looked like? Do they know what this, right? So my, my concern was you don't have the internal infrastructure. When, when, when President Trump posted misinformation about absentee voting, remember he said in California, they're sending absentee ballots to anyone who can breathe, right? And he suggested that the process being used in Michigan was somehow illegal, which it is not. He almost made it like absentee ballot voting was a new thing, like a some kind of new, newfangled scheme by the Democrats, right, to steal elections, when in fact it's been with us forever. We wanted Facebook to take the post down. And I remember that they didn't take them down. And it and 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 I felt like there was a certain pride in which people said it went all the way up to Mark Zuckerberg, you know, that, that and what they meant to say by that was 
he gave it, it, it was it was given the highest attention within the company. They wanted us to know that they took it seriously, that it was so important that it went up to the CEO. But that's like me being the head of LDF and they sent up to me, you know, Sherilyn Eiffel was the last word on whether or not we should use, you know, Windows 65 or, you know, some, some IT question. I mean, I know a lot of stuff, but what I don't know is IT. Saying that you sent it all the way up to me and I made the decision, that's actually something to brag about because I don't know what I'm talking about in that particular realm. And so my point was, what I'm saying to Facebook is I see the stated intention, but I didn't see the infrastructure to accompany the intention. Infrastructure that accompanies intention. That's what we call a system. In the first half of this episode, we've been talking about our voting system. And that's what we want to do with this show. We want to take the systems that govern our lives, the huge, unwieldy, seemingly immovable systems that determine how we do politics, how we live, how we relate to each other as a nation. And we're going to break those systems down. We're going to explain the history that created these systems. And with our guest, we're going to point to ways to move beyond or redesign these systems. We'll be tackling several different systems like housing, education, immigration, just to name a few. And we want to hear from you, our listeners, about the ways we can all move beyond the rules and well-traveled political paths that keep us down and produce injustices in our lives and communities. In a minute, we'll be talking to Alicia Garza about power, movement building, and electoral work. But first, a systems analysis from Melissa. So let's pause for a system analysis. It is individually irrational to vote. Let me explain. When I say irrational, I mean it in a very academic sense, particularly the way economists think about rational actions, pure cost-benefit analysis. For an economist, the way to determine if it is rational for an individual to vote is to add the benefits of voting and then subtract the costs. And if the number is positive, it's rational. But if the costs are larger than the benefits, the number is negative. Voting is irrational. So here's how it works with voting in big national elections. First, how do you determine the benefit of voting? Just to make it simple, think of the benefit as how much better your life or the lives of people you care about will be. Or maybe even how much more progress will be made on the issues that you care about if candidate X wins over candidate Y. That's gonna be your benefit, okay? And let's say we could measure that on a scale from one to 10, where 10 means things are gonna be much better, we're gonna make a lot of progress, or one, these two candidates are about the same. Now, second, how you determine the cost of voting. Again, to make it simple, think of this as all the financial and time costs associated with getting registered, getting informed, making a decision, going to the polls, standing in line, maybe even having to get an ID that is required in some states. That's the cost of voting. So again, let's say we could measure that on a scale from one to 10. 10 would be, it took a lot of time and money, and one would be, it wasn't that hard to do. Now, are you still with me? Great. So how is it that economists conclude that it is always individually irrational to vote. I mean, if the issues and people I care about will be much better under candidate X, I'm gonna call that a benefit of 10. And if it only costs me a little bit of time and energy to get registered and vote, I'm gonna 
call that a cost of one and 10 minus one is nine. Nine is definitely a positive number. Seems to me like it's perfectly rational to vote. Except for one thing. When you're doing a cost-benefit analysis, as individuals, we always have to take into account just how likely it is that our one vote will decide the election outcome. Not a few votes, not a small number, not a thin margin. Our one individual vote. Because in order to really figure out the benefit, you have to take that benefit and multiply it by the probability of being the single deciding voter in an election. And as you probably can already figure out, in a big national election, even in a state election, a congressional election, even most local elections, the probability that the election will be decided by just one vote is, well, zero. And you also probably remember this, that any number, whether it's a benefit of 10 or 100 or 1,000, if you multiply it by zero, that number becomes zero. So it means that your benefit term is always zero. And no matter how small your cost is, once you subtract a cost from zero, the equation always turns out with a negative number. This is why voting is a classic example of what social scientists call a collective action or a free rider problem. For the one individual, it is always more rational to let others bear the costs associated with voting rather than to take the time and effort to do so yourself, individually. So what does that say about the millions who already voted in the 2020 election? some of whom stood in line for three hours, six hours, nine hours, people who got turned away from polling places and had to find other places to vote, people who came out with masks and hand sanitizer in a pandemic. Are these people all irrational? Are they confused? Have people been lying to us all month about how important it is to go out and vote? No because there's one more part of the equation, one really important part of it. And that is, we're not just individuals. The whole deal of voting, the whole point of what we're up to here is that we are putting our one vote in a system. We're a community, we're a nation. The goal, the work, the, hmm, the term in the equation, that makes the benefit come out positive is that it is not just about us. It's not just about the individual. It's not just about the benefit to you. It's about the benefit to all of us, to the whole system. So we wait in line and we bear the cost and we risk our lives to vote. And it's not irrational. It is in fact, the very work of democracy. The great Lonnie Guineer said that living in a democracy is not something that we inherit, and it is not something we inhabit. It's not something we consume. It is something that we actively build together.
Thank you for that systems analysis, Melissa. And I want to bring in our next guest, our dear friend and comrade, Alicia Garza, who we've both known for a very long time. Listeners will know her from the many, many hats that she wears in the movement. Alicia describes herself as an innovator, a strategist and organizer, and a cheeseburger enthusiast. What? She's a principal at Black Futures Lab. She's the co-creator of Black Lives Matter and the Black Lives Matter Global Network. She's strategy and partnerships director for the National Domestic Workers Alliance. She's a co-founder of Supermajority. Because she doesn't sleep, she is the host of her own podcast, Lady Don't Take No. And did you know, if you follow her Insta, you would also know that she is a new dog mommy of yes. the most adorable. Oh, mommy. welcome to the club. Oh, my little precious Charlie <laughs> Nelson Garza. We love him. Charlie Nelson. I love it. I love it. So, uh, Alicia, we are so excited to talk to you in this moment because, number one, you have a new book out and it is phenomenal. The Purpose of Power how we come together when we fall apart, which is hot off the press. Secondly, Alicia, because you are doing incredibly, incredibly important electoral work with Black Futures Lab. So we wanted to talk to you about a range of things, including what in many ways in your book, which is a, a very intimate and personal journey of your life and career as an organizer. But we want to talk to you as someone who thinks and writes and obviously organizes around intersectionality and movement building and power and transformation. And I have to say, I just love this book because I think every organizer and would-be organizer in this country should read it. It should be mandatory reading for the 21st century to understand power, movement building, and transformation. But I want to go to chapter 11 in your book. You're showing off about how much you read. (laughs) Chapter 11, the title of that chapter is Voting Can Be a Movement. And so can you talk to us about this dimension of power, this dimension of electoral power, and its relationship to movements, and why should we care in this moment about elections and voting? Mm. I'm loving that we started there because we are facing the most important election season in a generation. And I wanted to make sure that this chapter was in the book because the reflections in this chapter are those that have spurred me to do the work that I'm prioritizing now at the Black Futures Lab and the Black to the Future Action Fund, which is really all about making Black communities powerful in politics so we can be powerful in the rest of our lives. And I say in the book that one of the things that really plagues our movements is an ambivalence around electoral organizing. And so often, you know, our cynicism and rightfully so, right? Rightful, depthful cynicism about the ways in which these systems and these processes fail to deliver their promises, keep us away from building the multifaceted power that we need in order to transform the power that is corrosive on our lives. And, you know, I say in the book that my mom had a saying that everything you leave on the table, you leave for somebody else to eat. And that's exactly how I would describe the 2016 election. You know, in this chapter, I talk a lot about some of the missed opportunities of the movement. Uh, The fact that our ambivalence towards elections and elected officials and electoral organizing really left a lot on the table for Donald Trump and the right to eat and eat they did. In fact, they gorged themselves. And that 
created the conditions where we were being used as a political football, right? Um, We were being targeted because our message had spread so far and so wide so quickly and had really gained a level of legitimacy amongst um, communities that were disaffected, communities that had been left out and left behind. And yet we missed the opportunity to organize those communities on a platform that could have demonstrated that we really were and are still a part of the majoritarian values in this country. So I love that Dorian started in chapter 11, which is not only clearly showing off that he read the book, but is probably what's going to happen with a bunch of college professors asking questions. So what I want to do, though, is back us up a little bit to this chapter, Alicia, that you call the first fight. And this is really a time when you're a young organizer and you're working with an organization in San Francisco. And the work that you're doing is to organize this community, the Bayview Hunters Point community, which you describe as the location where basically the last African-Americans living in San Francisco, really in that neighborhood. And as you point out, This community, Bayview, is like so many others around the country where it had been an industrial space. It had these great jobs. You know, it was a naval shipyard. But then as those jobs went away, all that was left was this poverty. But it was also very valuable land right there in San Francisco. And so the work that you were doing in this first fight is to try to make sure that the developers who are coming into Bayview and want to make use of this land are doing so in a way that continues to benefit the black community that is living there. So at the end of that chapter, at the end of your work organizing with some wins and some losses, you write this, organizing in Bayview forever shifted my orientation towards politics. It's where I came to understand that winning is about more than being right. It's also about how you invite others to be a part of change they may not even have realized they needed. So reflect on our systems and our systems of voting and engaging. Do they invite people in or push people away? Well, let me start with this, which is to say, A lot of times we talk about the right as this omnipresent, all-powerful movement that really came out of nowhere. And what I do in the book is I really situate uh, the conservative movement as something that built over time and that learned lessons along the way. And I think one of the lessons that they learned was that they wanted to be organized around power and not personalities and even not ideological positions. When we look at the conservative movement of today, it's actually multifaceted. There are many different ideological trends inside of that movement. And the most extreme of them now has power in this country. They control two thirds of state legislatures across the nation. They are changing the composition of the Supreme Court. They run the the United States Senate. And then of course they occupy the Oval Office in the White House. And what's interesting is if you look over the last 10 years at least, we actually have seen how they have matured. And in that maturation, you know, they did not consider Donald Trump to be somebody who was fit to be a leader. And in fact, in a lot of ways, they still don't. 
but they are clear, right, that they want power. And there's things that they let fall away in pursuit of that. Now, I'm not advocating that the left do that, but I think there are some things that we can learn. And one of the things I think we can do better as a left, as a progressive movement, as social movements, is um, a couple of things. Number one, to create the kinds of communities where we make room for the waking amongst the woke. Mm, can we just hear that formulation one more time? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Making room amongst the woke for the waking. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I learned in Bayview is that you know, so much of the stories that we get told and that we tell each other about change is outside of us, right? And Mm. we look at certain people as, you know, naturally gifted or as anointed in some way because they're charismatic or because they're whatever. And I can say quite honestly that some of the strongest leaders in my very first campaign were people who never saw themselves as leaders. They were people who struggled over and over again with imposter syndrome. I talk about that in the book. I talk about the ways in which the strongest leaders in the community were the people who were willing to go up against other folks who had been anointed in the community for the purposes of representing corporations. These were people who all had relationships with each other. They'd known each other's families for decades, and yet they would be on different sides of a fight. (laughs) And, you know, I also learned that it was really important to not approach getting people involved in a fight as narrow issues, but really digging into what I think is underneath everybody's drive to make social change, which is pursuing dignity and wanting to be able to survive. And I think our movements could even push farther to people's desire to thrive and not just make it. Alicia, can I just say you are an organizer's organizer. And I was so moved. I think, you know, you know, and some listeners might know, I just recently welcomed new life into the yes, world. Yes, I'm so proud. I'm so but, proud. Daddy Dorian. But, but I do want to talk about death and grief for a minute because you write with, you're, you're such a poignant writer about your mother. And wow, what a force of personality she she is because she's still alive in your book. And so um, I know we started with chapter 11. Melissa went to the beginning. I want to go to the epilogue of the book because it really struck me in this moment where it's, it's very personal and it's a moving epilogue where you talk about your mother's sickness, you talk about your grief and trauma around her death, and you then use that experience as a very insightful, you offer us an analogy around movement work and you write, quote, we need to treat our work as if it is in fact hospice care for that which is dying and prenatal care for that which is being born. And so I want to ask you, what is dying in this moment? What is being born? And how should we think strategically about the path to power in 2021 and for the next decade? Or to put it another way, what do we need in our organizing knapsack, as you said, for 2021 in terms of what's dying and what's being born? Mm, I love this question so much. I wish everyone would ask it to me. I didn't think I was going to finish this book. My mom did die unexpectedly in the middle of me writing this draft. And death does reorganize you. 
And it reorganizes you in such a way where you get really clear about what matters and what does not matter. And it gives you an opportunity to let things fall away that no longer serve you. It's almost like gives you the excuse, right? Because you only have so much energy inside of all that grief to do only the most important things. And I've chosen to let that organize me over and over again. And to answer your question, I think that the things that need to die away right now are us being afraid of power. Mm. So Mm. many of us see power as corrosive and dangerous, and it is. The way that it functions right now, it absolutely is. But at the same time, if we're not organizing for power, what are we organizing for? Why do we put ourselves through all of this mess if ultimately what we don't get to is transforming the way that power operates and really adopting power and saying, we're not going to be afraid of it. And in fact, we're going to be ready to lead, not just ourselves. I'm not trying to like lead the black nation, (laughs) right? I want us to govern. And if we're going to do that, we have to get comfortable with power. So that's one thing. The things that I think are possible to be born right now are movements that practice what they preach. And, you know, the challenge with movements, honestly, is that the way that we tell the story of movements is so packaged and it's so perfect and it ain't perfect. It's messy. And it's messy because movements are comprised of human beings who are trying to live in a world that does not yet exist. And the only way that we get closer to the world that we want is by really pushing ourselves to live it in real time and to show glimpses of it everywhere that we can. Those are the victories that we need. That's how we find the people who are looking for us. And that's how we build a movement in the millions. And I can say unequivocally that I was trained in such a way where I was taught that we're fighting for something that we'll never see in our lifetimes. And I reject that completely. Mm. Um, I don't believe that revolution is around the corner, but I also don't believe that we're doing any of this for anybody else but ourselves. And I want us to be honest about that. I want to live a better life. I want the people who I love to live a better life. And so it becomes imperative for us to take seriously the mandate of making change in our lifetimes. And in order for us to be able to get there, we have to clean up our mess and we have to be committed to it in ways that are unprecedented. Garza, I I love this point you just made about we are organizing for ourselves in our own lifetime. One of the like t-shirt sayings that I most dislike is the I am my ancestors wildest dreams. And I'm Mm -hmm. like, nope. (laughs) I mean, I'm sure they're proud of you. I'm sure they're happy for you. But their wildest dream, right, Mm -hmm. was freedom for themselves. Mm -hmm. That's right. The actual wildest, most beyond imagination was the idea that they would be free in their own lifetimes. And I think that's like it's worth pointing out that our ancestors wanted freedom for themselves. That's right. Mm -hmm. And simply because a system one doesn't mean um, that they weren't dreaming of it. That's right. Amen, Melissa. And thanks so much, Alicia Garza, for reminding us that the freedom we are fighting for is not just in the future. It is freedom in our own lifetimes, as well as for future generations. 
Thanks so very much for joining us for our very first episode of System Check. Thank you for having me, y'all, and congratulations. I'm so excited about this. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Alicia Garza, author of The Purpose of Power, How We Come Together When We Fall Apart. Such great guests. Now, let's transform all this analysis into action. So what is on the system checklist this week? I'm going to start. Get your hands on Alicia Garza's book, Purpose of Power. Buy it. Bring it with you. Download it. Listen to it on Audible. It'll give you something to do while you're waiting in that crazy long line to vote. Yes, which brings us to our second checklist item. If you are eligible and registered to vote and you haven't done so yet, get your ass out and vote. (laughs) And if you aren't sure whether your registration and eligibility are up to date, check up on it at vote.org. Now, if you've already cast your ballot, call, text or DM your friends and family to be sure they have voted as well. Listen, my dad called me every day until I had early (laughs) voted. If you try to cast your ballot and you run into a problem or a barrier, you are not alone. We have election protection and you can call election protection at 1-866-OUR-VOTE. And you'll be connected to a trained expert to ensure you can vote and that your vote counts. Now remember, voting is not a once in a lifetime action. It's a system, and you can make a difference in that system. Be a voter, have a voting plan, work with a nonprofit to register new voters, and most importantly, call, text your family and friends, call them and text them repeatedly to encourage them to cast their ballots. You can learn more about all of our system checklist items at thenation.com slash system check. That's system check, all one word. And speaking of words, Now for our final word. Don't be scared. This is our democracy. No matter what, if you have to bring your tennis shoes and your chair and your umbrella and your water and your lunch and whatever it takes, charge up your phone, bring some coffee, whatever it takes, make a plan and make sure that you vote. You're hearing from Linda Sutton. She's a statewide organizer with Democracy NC, a nonpartisan, nonprofit, education, registration, and mobilization organization in the critical swing state of North Carolina. I caught up with Ms. Sutton at an early voting site on the campus of Winston-Salem State University on a rainy and very windy Sunday afternoon. And Ms. Sutton has today's final word. And don't let anybody Don't let anybody stop you from exercising that right because that's the only way we can at least have some type of a a fair and just society and it's by voting for people that we hope are going to, you know, make some good laws and policies. And so we have a lot at stake, especially in the black community. Our senior citizens, their threats to cut Social Security, you know, everything, uh, all the recidivism that our ex-offenders are experiencing and the Black Lives Matter, and it's fine. We have to protest. We have to show that there is an injustice being done. And we've got to show people that we are not happy with that and we want change. 
But I want our folks to understand you've got to do more than protest and march. You've got to make a difference by going in and voting. Well, when we return, it'll be on the other side of election 2020. Lord, please. (laughs) We'll check back in with the system of voting by asking Melissa, what are the systems used to count our votes? Right. And, And how do we ensure that our electoral system actually transforms our votes into meaningful power and into the governance outcomes that lead to justice and equity? We'll be talking to Kristen Clark of the Lawyers Committee, Rashad Robinson from Color of Change, and a few others. System Check is a project of The Nation magazine, hosted by Melissa Harris-Perry and me, Dorian Warren, and produced by Sophia Steinardivoy. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at System Check Pod. Our executive producer is Frank Reynolds. Dee Dee Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Erin O'Mara is president of The Nation. Our theme music is by Brooklyn-based artist and producer, Jackery. Special thanks this week to our guests, Sherilyn Eiffel and Alicia Garza. And also, maybe a special thanks to all of the family dogs who made guest appearances during our recordings.